Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. reading today is from Mark 13, verses 1 through 4 and verses 24 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? They will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. See also, when you see these things taking place, you will know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. As you think about your life, a question that has kind of come to me this week in preparing this message Um, is this question. What is your defining day? What is your defining day? I think every single one of us has a day that really kind of shapes us and controls us. It may be a a, a good day. It may be a day from your past, uh, maybe your your, your day you graduated or the wedding day or the day that you had a child. Or it may be a bad day. It may be the day the person you love most died. It may be the day the relationship that you thought was the one fell apart. It may be the day the divorce happened. It may be the day you got the diagnosis. It may be the day that you were empty nested. Or the day that you were fired from your job. Those days have a lot of control on us. They have a power to to kind of shape us. But they might not be a day in the past. Maybe 
your shape, your defining day is the present. Does your day look like a scramble, like, like stress? Like you're just trying to, to get everything done in the day. You're trying to get your job done, uh, do the best you possibly can, and you're watching your family and you're watching uh, other hours and your health fall apart. Perhaps you wake up every day and it, it's, just, it's just like endless days. Every day is the same. You are like a ship in the doldrums. You just feel lost. Uh, you have no motivation, no ambition. You just kind of sink. What's today? Perhaps you are living the spirit of the age. Carpe diem, seize the day. Find whatever joy, whatever pleasure, whatever recreation you want. YOLO, you only live once. That is your defining day. Or perhaps the defining day for you is in the future. Perhaps the reality that you are getting closer and closer to your last breath is taking more and more control of your life. You are fearing death. You are fearing the number of days, the number of summers, the number of seasons to do what you want as your health deteriorates. You see, these days, they define us. They shape us. They control us. They have power over all the days of our life. And as I have thought about it, for the most part, bad days control us better or more completely than good days. The good days seem to fade, but the bad days seem to just stick and hold you. Our text today, I I believe, is, is a rescue from being defined by these sorts of days. It is an opportunity to be set free from being defined by days like this. Because this text today calls us to live by a different day, to live for a glorious day, to set our sights upon the day of Christ's return. You see, that day can set us free from all the bad days and can transform the present Because it commands our attention. It tells us that no matter what bad has beset me in my life, the end will be triumphant and the present will be taken and made nearly nothing by the immeasurable weight of glory that is ahead of us. It takes a life that is stuck or lost or full of stress and it gives us great purpose, courage, and hope. Every day that we have is a day that the Lord has given to us to work until he returns. How does setting our sights on the glorious day of Christ's return shape and control us? How does it set us free? How does it transform our lives? Well, I talked about this a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night with the men when we were going through 1 Peter. And if you haven't plugged into that study, I sure hope I'll see you this Wednesday because it's going very, very well. But... Imagine that you have a marathon that you want to run, a marathon that is six months in the future. You want to run that marathon, whatever your goal is, to complete it or to set a particular time or to win it. If that marathon is a true commitment, is a true day of your future, what does it do to your present? How does it change how you live today and the next day? It changes everything, doesn't it? It changes your diet, changes your exercise, it changes your routine. There is, a, there is a, a program that you have to be committed to to make sure that you are ready for race day. 
Well, likewise, if we are set upon the ultimate triumphant return of Christ, then that should control all the days between here and now because we want to be found ready and prepared. We want to be ready to worship the coming Lord. And so our text today wants to set in front of us with great gravity the future coming of Jesus Christ so that all the days that we live are focused and defined by that day. Now, as we get into chapter 13 of Mark, let us make sure we understand the context. We have seen Jesus come into Jerusalem, and uh, it's not going that well. We know that coming into Jerusalem was going to be a fateful experience because Jesus predicted three times that in Jerusalem that he would be arrested and betrayed, that he would be crucified and raised again. And we're running out of chapters in the book of Mark, so the events are, are upon the doorstep. But when Jesus comes into Jerusalem in chapter 11, we have the triumphal entry, and then we see Jesus clearing the temple, showing a, an act of judgment because the temple had become so abused and corrupted by the leaders of Israel that he curses it like he curses the fig tree, declaring that it had, it had become a den of robbers. And so judgment has been brought into uh, Jerusalem. And how do the leaders of Israel respond to that word of judgment? Well, they start preparing their own judgment. And we went through chapter 12 where we saw these multiple debates and encounters where the the rulers of Israel are trying to trap Jesus in his words or trap Jesus with the Romans so that they can bring charges and get rid of him. So we see uh, uh, all through this a a, a coming to a climax. These people, the, the, the rulers of Israel, are seeking to find a way to judge Jesus. But today, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples a profound truth. That though he is going to be judged in the next couple of chapters, he, in fact, is the judge of all history. He is the judge of the world. And though he will temporarily receive the judgment meted out by men, he will in the end bring the final judgment upon those who reject him. Now, as we look at this text, we have to admit, Mark chapter 13 is a hard text. It's a strange text. It is a format, a genre of literature that we just don't come across very often. We're we're told about wars and rumors of wars. We're talked about uh, things called the abomination of desolation. We're we're told about uh, stars falling from the skies, and and we read this in... uh, it's, it's uh, incredibly complicated to make sense of. And I also know that as we come together, many of us have been influenced by very popular teachers who have, who have probably pressed very hard a particular understanding of these scriptures uh, that, that, that will, will lead us to believe they say one particular thing. And so if that one particular viewpoint Uh, is not what is taught in the scriptures, it it creates an uphill battle for someone who wants to teach on Mark chapter 13 and try and get at what the text is saying. So as we look at this text, I want to step step back and kind of do a a, a broad understanding of how this text is looked at. I want to give you the fact that though there are various views on Mark chapter 13, and here's how I would summarize it. Some people read Mark 13, and they say, Most of what is said in Mark 13 is still future. 
with a little bit of it having happened in the past. Another viewpoint is most of what is read in Mark 13 is uh, already fulfilled in history with a little bit of it still to happen in the future. And most of us are familiar with that first viewpoint, reading all of these verses as, as future. But I am going to advocate that I think that second view is, is a stronger view. However, the, 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 even with that difference in reading this chapter, I want us to recognize that there is broad agreement that this chapter really deals with two events. Two events are being described in this chapter. The first is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70. And the second event is the second coming of Christ, which is yet future, which is the end of history. And so the question that, that divides commentators and theologians is which verses refer to which event. And I will tell you it's a very detailed argument to go through and to deal with each of these verses and see uh, how they would be best understood in context, how they would be best understood from the prophetic literature. And it is well beyond what we can do in a single sermon. So what I have to do is I have to be selective. Uh, I want to remind you the broad agreement. The two events that we're going to talk about are agreed by everybody. What verses refer to which is, is in, in discussion. But as I understand this passage, and as I am going to go through it, my understanding is that verses 1 to 31 are going to refer to the destruction of the temple. And that verses 32 to 37 are the verses that refer to the second uh, coming. But regardless of whether you agree with that or if that seems absolutely incredible to you, it is the main thing to recognize that two events, regardless of which particular viewpoint you take on individual verses, there are two events, these two events, that are being discussed. So as we get to this text, I want us to recognize going into it that Jesus is establishing himself as the Lord of history, and he is making his return as the defining day for his disciples' lives. We are going to see his lordship in these two events, which together are going to call us to live our lives ready for the day of Christ's return. And the timeless question, the pertinent question, the question that every single one of us must deal with today is this. Are you ready for Christ's return? If history ends before the sermon is over, are you ready to meet the Lord? Can you face him and know your destiny? And finally, is Christ your defining day? Can people look at your life and the hope that lies within you and say, yes, that person is anchored in a hope that cannot be extinguished or tarnished by anything in this world? And that is what Jesus wants for his disciples today. So let us go now and look at this first event. Event one, if you're following your handout, is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And this event confirms Jesus's present reign. Now, uh, my understanding of the, again, the first 31 verses being uh, driven uh, by the destruction of the temple is pretty easy to follow from uh, a couple key verses. First, if you look at Mark chapter 13, verse 2, after they have left the temple, uh, we see uh, Jesus, uh, after being told, wow, isn't this temple amazing? Isn't all of these buildings amazing? We see Jesus saying in verse 2 to his disciples, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another 
that will not be thrown down. Clearly, the reference is the temple. We are talking about the destruction of the temple. And Jesus is saying, these things, this building is about to be thrown down. This clearly shocks the disciples. Because what is more permanent than this majestic building of God's temple? And so in 13.4, they ask the question that sets up the entire chapter. Verse 13.4 says, tell us then, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be acknowledged? Pay attention. That is uh, asking for Jesus to give out more information to what he just said, that no stone will be left upon another. When they say these things, they are talking about those stones, the, the, the buildings being torn down. They are asking one question to Jesus. When is the temple going to be destroyed? And so Jesus immediately goes into what we call the Olivet Discourse, where he begins to answer that question. And I believe his answer to that question finally comes in Mark 13, 30, where he says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, incidentally, for history, Jesus is saying this around 30 to 31, 32 A.D. And the events of the destruction of the temple happen in A.D. 70. A generation in that age was reckoned as 40 years. And so Jesus is saying within a generation, all these things, the destruction of the temple, will happen. And history bears out the fact that he was right. Okay? So I I see from 13.2 to 13.30 being focused on answering that question, uh, when will these things happen? Now, in those verses, in between verses 4 and 30, there's some stuff in there that sounds incredible. It sounds huge and cosmic and, and hard to believe it could have possibly been fulfilled. You're right. It is a, a challenging text. We can't deal with every single one of these verses, but I want to give a couple thoughts to help us understand a little bit of how uh, Jesus' words uh, are operating in, in chapter 13. First of all, Jesus is using prophetic language, which is a different kind of language than newspaper words. What you, what you write in your newspaper uh, retelling events is different than a, a prophetic passage. It is a different genre. Uh, and prophetic language means it is full of, of symbols. It is full of images that sometimes have a more grandiose appearance than the actual act in history. Let me give you an example. We're going to look at verses 24 and 25. So Mark 24 uh, says this. uh, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Okay. If if that is meant to be uh, absolutely taken uh, literally, like it were written in a newspaper as, a, as, an, as, a, as an event that uh, was just being described, we might say, well, how, how could that possibly have happened? But when we put ourselves in the framework of prophetic language, when we put ourselves in the framework of how the Bible speaks of major events in history, here's some things to think about. If you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 37, you meet Joseph. Joseph uh, was given some visions about what he was going to become. And they made his parents and his brothers very upset at him. 
Let us listen in chapter 37, verse 9, to one of the visions that God gave Joseph. Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to the father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? You see, uh, Joseph's brothers and, and, and Jacob, his father, recognized that this image of the sun and the moon and the stars was referring to the family, was referring to the actions in their family. The reason that sun, moon, and stars were being used was to show that a major disturbance in how the family was going to be structured was going to change. Usually the father or the oldest brother, it becomes the leader. But because Joseph was going to become the leader of the family by the end of Genesis, these words of stars and moon and, and uh, uh, everything bowing down is showing that, a, that a, in cosmic language, the major upheaval that is happening in that particular family. So these, these words of moon and sun and stars are used to describe upheaval. But if you were to read Genesis 38 to 50 and look at those events that are fulfilled where this vision becomes true, you would see nothing that looks nearly as grandiose as anything to do with the moon and sun and stars. You would just see a family being restructured with the youngest son becoming the leader. Okay? So it, it's, it's having to have the right perspective of understanding what is going on? Go now to Isaiah chapter 13, and you're going to read these words in verse 10. Isaiah says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Behold, and so that's, that's verse 10. Do you, do you see the near parallel with what we've read in, in Mark chapter 13? Nearly identical language. In fact, it's probably Jesus is referring back to, to Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. Okay, for the stars of the heavens and the constellations will not give their light. If you keep reading in Isaiah chapter 13, you get to verse 17, you will under, you'll see the interpretation of those words. Verse 17 then says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes, the Persians, against them, against Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor of pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So what Isaiah is saying with all these cosmic disturbances is that Babylon, the great nation that ruled uh, over the horizon, that had all of the glory, was going to be overthrown by the Persians. The language is being used to describe overthrow. Okay, very similar to how it was being used by Joseph. So when we see this language... In, uh, on Jesus' lips, and he is talking about the destruction of the temple, I think we need to have that context in mind, that, that this is talking about events that may not be uh, in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense, describing the calamity of the temple being destroyed. And that's the next thing we need to recognize, is the context. The context of, of Mark chapter 13 is referring to Judea, referring to Jerusalem, to a Jew, Imagine what the destruction of the temple by the Romans meant. Get into the mind space of, of what that event would have been to their, uh, their identity and their sense of security and their awareness of, of how the world works. I'll give you a very near-term example. What, what thoughts and feelings were in your mind 
September 11th, 2001, when you saw the World Trade Center, these two bastions of freedom being brought down to ashes. It was an earth-shattering event. I mean, the, the language that we used to try and describe that was, was cosmic. It was calamitous. It was like the world is, is coming to an end. What is stable, what is real, everything is falling apart. And so when we recognize that the temple was an even bigger image to Jerusalem's understanding and to the Jewish person's identity as a Jew than the World Trade Center was to us, then we understand why this language makes so much sense. Because it describes the emotional, the identity issues, the nationality issues that were at stake when the temple was destroyed. All right. So that's just my uh, appeal that these words uh, should be understood as, as fulfilled in the destruction of, of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. Now here's what's important. The destruction of the temple announces Jesus is the one who reigns. Jesus is the one who reigns. Look at Mark uh, 13, 26. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Those words are telling us that Jesus reigns. Jesus is upon the throne. Now, I know that one of the more popular understandings when you read the words, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, is to, is to picture the second coming. Like I said, I believe that the passage, uh, Mark 13, deals with the second coming after verse 32. But when we look specifically how Jesus words this uh, in, in verse 26, they will see the man coming in clouds with great power and glory. We need to ask the question, where is the Son of Man coming? Where, where is he coming? Our, our default is to think he's coming to earth. But Jesus is echoing, in fact, he is, he is alluding so strongly to a previous Old Testament passage in, in Daniel that, that we must understand the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds with power and glory in light of what is told to us in Daniel. Here's what, Jesus, or here's what is told to us in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see how Jesus' words in, in Mark 13 uh, are picking up on those words in Daniel chapter 7? He is coming on clouds. He is receiving power and glory. You see the, the close connection? So where is the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7? coming. He's coming into the throne room of God. He is assuming his rightful reign at the throne. The direction is not to earth, but it's, it's to the highest throne. It's what is being described where he receives uh, the power to rule. And so what I believe is going on here in chapter 13 at this point is that by the destruction of the temple, by the overthrow of, of the rulers of this age in the destruction of the temple, Jesus is showing no longer are the rulers of the temple the way to God. That has changed. I am now the one on the throne. I am now the one that sits uh, above all powers. Uh, I am the, the true Messiah. Uh, if you go to Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, I think you can see this borne out. 
here at the trial of Jesus, Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says that the people who are putting him to death will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, Daniel chapter 7 is in view there. So why can he say that they are going to see him reigning? Because they are going to see the one who declared judgment on the temple, the one who was resurrected, the one who all the peoples of Jerusalem and around the world are now gathering to. They will see all of that, and then they will see the temple structure being destroyed in A.D. 70. With eyes to see, they will recognize the one that we crucified was indeed the Messiah. He reigns. Okay. I know that that is detailed, but I think it is uh, helpful uh, information to work with. Let us now think about the power of this reality for our faith. The power uh, of, of knowing that Jesus is presently reigning and that we know that by his confirmed prophecy over the temple 40 years early. I think there are three things to grasp. The power of this reality for our faith tells us, first of all, that Jesus' word is proven true. Verse 31 tells us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. As Jesus' prophecy is perfectly fulfilled within 40 years of his utterance of this, we know that Jesus' words are the words of God. They will not pass away. The temple itself will crumble, but Jesus' words will not pass away. So we have that authority. We know that Jesus' word is proven true. Second, we know by his fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus is the Lord of history now. Not in the future. It's not just just someday he is the Lord of history. He sits on the throne now. His words of judgment are fulfilled in history. And so we know that Jesus is the Lord of history now. And third, and this is most important as we recognize the destruction of the temple being fulfilled in Jesus' prediction. Jesus is now the temple. Jesus is now the meeting place for God's people to know God. Listen to these words in Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is a temple that, is thrown, that has been thrown down, but there is a cornerstone in Christ where a new people is being built up. Verse 12, And there is no salvation in, uh, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God did not leave any question about how do you approach God. Do you approach him through the temple or do you approach him through Jesus Christ? How do we know that? He had the temple destroyed so that we know that the only way to come to God, to find peace with God, is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I think this is powerful stuff from the history of the world that confirms our gospel as the one true gospel. Amen? All right, so that's event one. (laughs) Event two. The second coming establishes Jesus' eternal reign. Now, I believe the second coming is dealt with most specifically, and and, and I think probably exclusively in this chapter, at verses 32 to verses 37. And what can we say about the second coming of Jesus from from Mark 13? First of all this, the second coming is certain. 
but unknown. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day, speaking of the, the, the second coming, or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, the second coming is certain. It is a day. It is that day. It is a specific day. And yet it is an unknown day. We don't know when it's going to be. In the great mystery of of the incarnation, we're told that even the son, at, at least in his incarnation, was not able to know the day of his return. I, I, there's a whole other, at least Sunday school class, on, on, how, on what that means. But, but for, for the sake of the, the point here, it is unknown, but it is certain. You see, the day of the Lord is much different than the, the day of the t- uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Whereas the destruction of Jerusalem had many signs, had many predictions, had many events leading up to it. Jesus tells us that the return, uh, the, the earthly return of himself has no signs. There is nothing that we can say, well, until this happens, we're safe. And there's no after. There are no signs to tell us when it's going to happen, meaning it can happen at any moment. But also, when Jesus returns, there is nothing after the return of Christ. That's the end. It's like musical chairs. We're playing a song. We're walking around. We're trotting. The song's gone on a long time. The DJ maybe seems like he's forgotten the game's going on. However, when the music stops... The game is over. You either have a seat or you don't. That's the message about the second coming for us here. Listen to these words from Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That will happen like a thief. It will sneak up on us. We won't know it before it happens. But when it happens, it will be calamitous. It will be definitive. It will be the end. And so I must say this right now. I hope you are all listening. That day, which will come like a thief, will either be the best day for you or the absolute worst day. We're told by Jesus in the Gospel of John that when that day comes, this will happen. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. When Jesus comes back, you will either receive life or you will receive judgment And they will both be eternal. So what this means for us is we live in the latter days. We know because of event one that the temple fell apart, that Jesus' words are true. We know by the resurrection that he has risen from the dead. We have evidence upon evidence to know that Jesus will come again. We live in the latter days. We live in what is called the already not yet. We already know the end is certain because we have seen so many fulfillments by Jesus. And yet it has not come yet. But we know it is going to come because it is established on certain promises and certain prophecies. So the question for us as we conclude 
is how do we live in such a way to be ready for Jesus' return? How can we live in such a way that we are not afraid when the thief sneaks up and turns on the lights and says it's over? How can we be ready for his return when the musical, the music stops and we have to make sure we have a chair? Jesus gives us four commands to make us ready for his return, which we will go through briefly. The first command that he gives us to be ready for his return is this. We must be sober-minded. Verse 5 tells us, see that no one leads you astray. If you look at verses 5 through 8, Jesus is going to list a whole bunch of things that could confuse us. Uh, False messiahs, rumors of wars, earthquakes, different signs that his disciples in that day could possibly be distracted by, could possibly be led astray by, by people saying, uh, that earthquake reveals that I am the Messiah, or something like that. Jesus wants them to know that they should not be led astray. So also that applies to us today as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Now, we are not being uh, racked with uh, rumors of false Christs and all of that sort of stuff. The, 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 uh, the, the being led astray is coming perhaps in a different direction. We are being bombarded with distractions. Everything is coming at us to forget about tomorrow, to forget about the coming of the, the Lord, but to seize the day. We live in a, a, a society of 24-hour news that gets us caught up in the wars and rumors of wars that keep us from focusing on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Facebook accounts suck away all of the free time that should be given to prayer and reading of the scriptures. Our phones are constantly right there to distract us. There is always an opportunity to have fun, to do something diversionary. But Jesus wants his disciples to know then, he wants his disciples, us to know now, that as we wait for him, we must be sober-minded, for we do not know the day he will return. But we must make sure that we are focused upon the Lord when he returns. We must be found grounded in the word. And so let me ask you, have you been led astray by the distractions? Have you been led astray by all of these diversions from focusing on knowing the Lord and being ready for the Lord when he returns? Take this opportunity to evaluate where your time is going, where your focus and priority is. Will you be found prepared for the Lord, knowing his word, hearing his voice by what you are doing now? The second command is that we must be witnessing. We must be witnessing in this time until Christ returns. Verses 9 through 11, Jesus tells his disciples that while they wait for him, they need to be out bearing witness. Verse 9, we live in the time where God is gathering his elect, where he is gathering his believers from all nations. How does that gathering happen? How are all these people from all different nations being gathered into the kingdom of God? What means has, has Christ given to bring his elect into the kingdom? He has given his gospel. And he has entrusted his gospel to his church, to his people, to be out sharing the good news, to say, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready for the Lord when he returns? We are called to be witnesses to be committed to the Great Commission. Jesus' last words were, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
When the Lord returns, will we be found faithfully sharing his gospel? If we are living for that day, that is our defining day, then what more could we be invested in than making sure the people around us know the one and only way of salvation? Amen? Third, the third command that we we must uh, live out to be ready for his return is this. This is a hard one. We must be prepared for persecution. If we are going to be ready for Christ's return, we must be prepared for persecution. Jesus told his disciples then, in verse 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Hated ostracized, unpopular, punched, put in jail. Read the book of Acts. That is what faithful disciples will receive for Jesus' sake. The same must be true for us. Certainly, we live in a privileged time. We live in rare times, strange times. The United States of America, with its religious freedom, has experienced a a parenthesis on the rampant Christian persecution that has been known for all the millennia since Christ and is known in every country outside of this one. But we, I'm afraid, have been lulled into a sense of complacency that we have a right not to be persecuted, that we have a right not to be hated that we have a right not to to face uh, the severe uh, dislike of the people around us. But Jesus says it's normal. The normal is that we will be persecuted. They will hate us for our name's sake. And the question is, can you hold to the gospel if it means people will hate you for it? Because if you're not prepared for that, you'll throw the gospel away. And you will not be ready when Christ returns. The fourth, the fourth command to make us ready for his return is to be expectant, to be expectant. And here we we look at um, these last few words in the chapter, uh, verse 36 and 37. Jesus says, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay asleep. Awake. What is falling asleep? What would it mean to be found asleep? What do you think the the image of wakefulness and sleepiness is about? It means that Jesus, when he returns, better not find us asleep to the things of the kingdom of God. Asleep to what matters to him, asleep to loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors, ourselves, asleep to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, asleep to committing to stir one another up until the day that he comes by faithful gathering in the church. We can go on. Asleep to what matters eternally, love and justice, Asleep to the glory of God. Lulled by 
to sleep by cheap grace. Falling back into worldliness, living like our neighbors, pursuing instant gratification, living for selfishness, pursuing greed, being committed to you only live once. Those things should not be confused with a faithful Christian. Because we are to be expectant, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. My friends, my beloved, Christ, beloved, how do you want to be found when the Lord returns? Do you want to find him to find you at your computer? Looking at what you shouldn't be looking at? How do you want to be found when he returns? Live with Christ's return as your defining day. And chasten the worldliness that calls upon you. I must say this. Some of you perhaps are presuming upon the patience of God. We are in the year 2018, for goodness sake. How can we possibly believe that this shoe is ever going to drop? How many generations have gone by without seeing the Lord's return? Perhaps we should just believe it's not going to happen. Perhaps we should just wager that this isn't ever going to to come to pass, that the, the history is not going to end, that he's not going to come like a thief. My friends, if that's how you think, you have mistaken God's patience and grace for your soul, for his for inactivity. Listen to these words from Peter, Second Peter three nine The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient Toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That the Lord did not bring history to a close this morning may be because He wants you in His kingdom, and He knows that for whatever reason you have held back, you are near but not in the kingdom of God. Do not presume upon His patience. God's patience today is your opportunity to be in his kingdom, to be in his welcomed glory. This is an opportunity. Have you accepted Jesus Christ dying for your sins? Have you accepted the fact that he rose from the dead? Have you put your faith in him as the one who speaks the word and history obeys? Do you call him Lord? Is his return your defining day? Do not delay. You must be found awake. There is no other hope. So are you living for the day of Christ's return? Think of these words as we close from from the first letter of Peter. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. What are you putting your weight on? What are you trusting in? What are you living for? The idea is that all of our weight is upon the return of Christ and his gospel. That's who we are. That's what defines us. Is your weight fully upon the hope of his return? 
My friends, if it is, it will liberate you from all the defining days that crush you and limit you and call you a failure. It will set you free to live for purpose, to work for eternal rewards and experience eternal glory. Let the day of the Lord rule your hearts and you will have strength for today and whatever challenge it brings. And you'll have strength for every day until he returns. Keep awake. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.